All right, well, we're gonna begin by feasting on Psalm 16, and let's ask the Lord's blessing on our spiritual meal together. Father, our souls are satisfied in you alone, and we need now for you to provide the things through your word that we can get nowhere else. Would you grant us faith to live faithfully for the week ahead? Would you grant us comfort in counsel in the quiet of our hearts, in the place that no one can reach but you. And would you give us an enduring joy, a joy in our Savior, Jesus Christ, even as we study this song together. We pray all these things in his mighty name. Amen. It was a rather normal Sunday morning for the Phillips family back in April of this year, Easter Sunday, actually. When, that is until they heard the tornado sirens going off. Now, the Phillips family had moved to Moss, Mississippi not long ago, and the father, Andrew, he was a volunteer firefighter, which meant he put a high premium on safety and security as they went house shopping. So he looked for a house with a very strange feature to it. He knew they were moving into a place called Tornado Alley with lots of tornadoes, so he wanted something called a safe room. It is essentially a concrete closet reinforced with rebar. It's a, a, something that FEMA actually rates houses for in that part of the country. And it's a place that you can run to for refuge if the winds of a whirlwind come your way. Well, that Sunday morning, they heard the sirens go off and they knew exactly where to run. That family of four with two little ones piled into the closet. Mr. Phillips knew that it, he didn't have long, but he took the chance to go back for some pillows and that almost did him in. He made it inside the closet and shut the door just before the sound they describe as like a military helicopter over, right over the top of their house set in for several minutes. Just in the nick of time, safe and secure because they knew where to run for refuge. Well, this has been a year where many of us have been thinking a lot about safety and security. I don't think any of us wanted to be as familiar as we have become with terms like death rates and infection rates and vaccination rates. We have managed to learn how to make risk assessments on the fly, and all the time, the question of safety and security was in front of us. Our physical safety is obvious enough during this last year of the pandemic, but think of all the other areas that we value safety as humans. We want our jobs to be safe and secure. We want to feel safe and secure in our relationships, to have someone that's safe to confide in. We even want to be the type of person that's described as being secure in their self-esteem. Uh, we are undoubtedly a culture that values safety and security. But I wonder, can it actually be found? Well, Psalm 16 is here for that very reason, to answer that very question. It is a song to show you how you can find security for your soul. It's a, a song from King David, a, a man that was used to quite a few quite difficult situations, you might say. God got him out of quite a few tight spots. And it's a song that you would describe as a song of confidence. That is, he's recalling the reasons why he has found God to be reliable 
specifically to be the safe place for his soul. Uh, verse 1 sounds like it's going to be a minor key kind of lament song where he's complaining to God. L listen to it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. But what comes next is not a series of complaints or things for God to deliver him from. Instead, what comes next are four reasons why David has confidence that he can take refuge in his God. Those four reasons are going to be a checklist of sorts for us. You might say you, you're going to look into the very heart of God and see if he, in fact, is a safe place for your soul on the day of trouble. Here are those four things you will check into together. First, we're going to check where your allegiance lies. Check where your allegiance lies in verses 2 through 4. Second, we're going to check what satisfies your soul. Verses 5 through 6, check what satisfies your soul. Third, check who comforts and counsels you. Check who comforts and counsels you in 7 through 8. And then fourth and finally, check that your joy is full and forever. Check that your joy is full and forever in 9 through 11. And as we do this together, I hope we all together come to this conviction that we can have confidence in Christ, the safe place for our souls, the place to run so that your soul can find refuge. Let's begin in two through four. Check where your allegiance lies. David gives something like his pledge of allegiance, but not to a flag, but to his God, Yahweh, in verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Pledges of allegiance serve at least two purposes. To let everyone around you know where you stand, and to convince yourself of where your true loyalty lies. Uh, my kids love a book series called The Green Ember Saga. It's a, a fictional setting, a little rabbits fighting wars. And there's good guys and bad guys, good rabbits and bad rabbits, essentially. And the good rabbits serve uh, the descendants of good King Jupiter. And in the midst of their great calamities and dangers before big battles, they very often will say a sort of pledge of allegiance to let each other know where they stand and to steal their own hearts for what's coming. It goes like this. They say, my place beside you my blood for yours, till the green ember rises or the end of the world. My kids love that. <laughs> There's something really helpful, clarifying for your soul to declare where its allegiance lies. Uh, David says very clearly, my allegiance is to my God. He says it personally, not some abstract God, my God. And notice he says that I have no good apart from you. In other words, I've got nothing if I don't have my God. Now he matches that allegiance with his God with allegiance for God's people in the next verse, verse three. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He describes God's people as the place where he wants to be, the excellent ones. There's nowhere else where my loyalty lies except with God and by implication with his people. And that's only highlighted even more when you consider the alternative. 
In verse 4, he tells us where he will never swear allegiance, abominable worship of other gods. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The images of someone running, running to their ruin, that is. They are sprinting, and the faster they sprint, the more their sorrows multiply. Now, this is undoubtedly talking about the other religions in the land that would inevitably draw Israel away to worship these false gods. And David looks at those pagan rites, the the blood offerings that they would drink, the, the names of power that they would have on their lips, and he says, I will have nothing to do with them. My allegiance is to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Do you know the importance of clarifying for your own heart where your allegiance lies? Back in 8160, there was a Christian by the name of Polycarp. He had been serving the Lord for a long time. He was an old man when the Romans came for him. That was the uh, time in church history where you did not want to be taken by the Romans. He knew his death would be brutal and painful and humiliating. He was brought before the proconsul who tried to get Polycarp to renounce his Christianity so that he could save faith in front of his subjects. He said to him, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp, just, just renounce Jesus and the pain will stop. And this is how Polycarp responded. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? There's something wonderfully clarifying to the soul when you declare your allegiance to King Jesus, no matter what it will cost you. I know that there are many students that are about to graduate, head off to college, some of you who are already in that stage of life. And with the opportunities uh, that your ability to set your own schedule and decide what you do and don't do with your time, with all that freedom comes a question that you have to answer, a question that is a question of allegiance. Do you serve Jesus and Jesus alone? Or will you sprint after the things of this world? Uh, the, The things that seem like they're going to bring you so much fulfillment and pleasure and yet ultimately will only multiply your sorrows. Would you learn this lesson early? Avoid the regret that so many Christians have that they did not swear their allegiance to Jesus in the way they lived during the days that they were in college. Now to all of us that are Christians, no matter what stage of life we're in, we all need to be able to clarify that we bow to Jesus and Jesus alone, that our allegiance is to God and his people. And that means every Sunday when we gather, we need to remember that what we are doing is a form of pledging allegiance again. We sing songs, we pray, we sit under the preaching of God's word to say we are satisfied by him alone and we will trust in no other. Christ in Christ alone has our allegiance as a church. First thing you need to do to find refuge A safe place for your soul is check where your allegiance lies. Second thing you need to do, 
is check what satisfies your soul. That's what we see in verses five through six. Uh, the image shifts uh, as the Psalms are full of word pictures and images. We're gonna see lots of this. Uh, five and six, the dominating image is of life and land. Verse five, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. David's drawing from the images of the land of Canaan as it was divvied up to the Israelites after they conquered the the peoples of the land and, and claimed it as God had promised. When they did so, the land was broken up into plots, different sections that were given to different tribes and specific families. And back then, they were an agrarian society. That meant that you lived off the land. You had to be able to grow crops and to tend flocks. You needed somewhere to do that. So your land, your place to live, was tied to your ability to live. Now, David takes those images, and he applies them to his relationship with God. And he points out one image that stood out from that whole apportioning business. See, 11 tribes got different chunks of land, but one did not. The Levites, they got no land because the Lord was their inheritance. He was their portion. Now listen to David's words again. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. He's saying, I am satisfied. Everything I need comes from God himself. The image of the cup is both of sustenance or what you drink from. It's also fellowship. You could think of the relational needs he had. He said, all of it is satisfied in God. He holds my lot. Every bit of my life is in his hands. In verse 6, the image shifts more specifically to the details of the land. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He imagines as if an Israelite had been given one of these plots of lands and is walking around exploring it. He finds rolling hills and streams and green pastures. And he thinks to himself, this is a good inheritance and it's not a rental. I get to keep it. That image is the way David finds satisfaction in God. Do you see that David has found that God and God alone can satisfy his soul. You know, we we sang a song earlier that had this theme running through it of satisfaction in God alone. Do, Do you believe these words in your heart? My worth is not in what I own, and I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. I fear that too many of us walk through this life, even as Christians, as if God won't make good on his promises to satisfy us in the most, in the deepest parts of our hearts. I feel, uh, I worry that we are a people that know how to hedge our bets. They have a little taste of God and a little taste of something else. As if we might go to the well of God's delights and come up dry one day, so we can't bring ourselves to totally rely on him and him alone to satisfy us. I heard the story of a baseball player who defected from Cuba to the United States. Overnight, he went from abject poverty to being a multimillionaire. 
Uh, it's a, a, quite a culture clash when you've never had enough to suddenly having literally anything you could possibly want that money could buy. Well, a friend brought him to the most American thing ever, an all-you-can-eat buffet. And they went into the place, and he went, and he got a big plate full of food, and the baseball player ate the whole plate full of food. And then they were sitting there, and the friend tells him, hey, why don't you go back and get another plate? And the baseball player goes, you can't go back and get another plate. They don't let you do that. What sort of plate? You're trying to get me in trouble. You can't, you can't have more food. The guy's like, no, no, you, you can eat until you're satisfied. You can have as much as you want. Now, if you're coming from a place where you're never satisfied, it's hard to really believe that you can have all you want, full satisfaction. If you've been tasting what the world can give you, I can't help but think that your soul might have you convinced that there's no such thing as true satisfaction. There's no way God could be, really be enough for me. There's no way that if I didn't get that job that I could really be satisfied. There's no way that if my health never got better, I could never be, there's no way I could be satisfied. There's no way, if, if God didn't give me a spouse, there's no way that I could really be satisfied in this life. No way. Yet if we understood what was on offer from the God who supplies us with everything and most importantly, who supplies us with himself, we'd know it's a fool's errand to try and find satisfaction anywhere than in our Lord Jesus Christ. Check where your satisfaction comes from. Third, check who comforts and counsels you in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. This time the image is of the quiet questions that you answer when you lay down the end of the hard day and lay your head on your pillow. Uh, David imagines a moment where all of his attendants are gone, all of his foes have gone to bed, and he is left just with himself and his thoughts. And he says, and in that moment, he has a counseling session with God himself. He says, God is the one who gives him counsel. The, the next line of the poetry fills in what that image means. And the night also, my heart instructs me. That this is God speaking to David in a way no one else can, in the quiet of his heart, directing him, convicting him of sin, assuring him, providing him with his very words of instruction. Now, it's clear that this is not David directing himself. Uh, the next line, verse 8, makes clear that David's focus is on God in this moment. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Uh, you can think of someone uh, going through a dense forest with a guide. Keep your eye on that guide. Keep him always in front of you, and you will be safe and secure. The other image is of someone at your right hand. That's a place of honor and of help. That person at David's right hand is God. And as a result, he's not afraid. He won't be shaken. The Lord is his comforter and his counselor. So David finds peace, even rest, when he lays his head down to sleep. And realize that we are all listening to the counsel of someone. 
It might be that you're listening to the counsel of a trusted friend or a parent. Uh, Maybe your counseling is coming through your Twitter feed or some other social media platform. Maybe it's talking heads on TV. Uh, Maybe it's the culture you live in that's telling you what to value, what's good, what's virtuous. We're all being counseled by something, or rather someone. For the Christian, though, God must be our counselor. We should want to hear his voice, to have him direct us, him tell us what is pleasing to him and what we should avoid. One way to tell what you're listening to is to take the quiet test. That moment where all the other voices fade, where there's no more things left to do and it's just you and your thoughts as your head lays on your pillow. What voices start going through your head in that moment? Uh, I once walked with a young man who confessed to me. He said, I cannot sleep without headphones with loud music playing. When we started talking about why, it turned out that he didn't like the things that he said about himself when he laid down to sleep. He thought about all the things he said wrong throughout the day. Thought about all of his failures. His heart condemned him over and over and over again, so he tried to distract himself with music. I told him very gently, but I told him that's not the way a Christian is supposed to spend his quiet moments. Those moments are meant to be between you and the Lord. And with much prayer and with much attention to God's words, God's words got into his heart. And he was able to find peace in those moments of quiet. I wonder, do you find the moments where it's just you and God to be a difficult time? Or like David, do you find those to be a time of counsel and comforts with the very God you serve? Uh, I'm not someone that regularly struggles to fall asleep. Um, My parents described me as someone who could fall asleep pretty much anywhere at any time. Um, I've had people ask me over the years how that happens, and I think part of it's growing up as a kid of an airline pilot and going through time zones and stuff, but uh, the way I describe it is this, uh, life is one long struggle to stay awake, and so when I want to go to sleep, I just give up. (laughs) Well, for someone like me that doesn't generally have trouble sleeping, insomnia, the few times I've had it, can be very, very troubling. I don't want to pretend for any moment here that that, that is not a bad place to, to find yourself. I know it could be a very anxious thing to have thoughts running through your head over and over. I once asked a mentor when I was dealing with one of my few bouts of it, what do you do in moments like that? And he very wisely told me, he said, you know, if, if God has me awake, I generally think he has something he wants me to do. And if I can't think of anything particular to do, I can't think of anything better to do than to pray. So why don't you try praying? And then he gave me some very practical steps that he spends his time in the middle of the night praying when the Lord has him awake. I don't know if that's what the Lord has for you if you find yourself awake, this evening even. But I do know this, that the Lord wants you to seek him in the quiet when all the other voices fade, that he is your counselor, And he wants you to find him to be your your comforter. So seek him when it's quiet. And find, like David, that he is your safe place. 
There's a fourth and final thing for you to look into. Check that your joy is full and forever. Check that your joy is full and forever. In verses 9 through 11, David expresses confidence that God is both going to keep him alive and that God is going to keep him in a place of joy forever. In verses 9 through 10, David focuses on what is likely him thinking about his earthly life. That is, God getting him out of tight spots. And remember David's life, there was a lot of those. In verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Uh, in verse 9, he expresses this joy he has because of this confidence that God is going to allow his flesh to dwell secure. That is basically saying, you're going to keep me alive, God. Verse 10 has a similar idea. You're not going to abandon me to the grave, Sheol. You're not going to let my body rot. Your Holy One see corruption. It makes most sense if David is probably at this point thinking about God saving him from his enemies. And we don't know what enemies. This, this psalm does not have a, an occasion to it. But again, David's life had so many opportunities where if something went just slightly different, he would have been done for. This is him expressing confidence that God will continue to save him and he will not meet an untimely death. And yet... David's confidence that God's going to keep him alive doesn't explain everything in these verses. Uh, verse 11 is one of those few verses in the Old Testament that clearly is speaking about life beyond the grave. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David is imagining that there is a, a path of life that God will put him on, that he is going to be in a place with full joy, full joy that goes on forever in God's very ple uh, presence. Pleasures forevermore. Undoubtedly, verse 11, David is thinking of what happens beyond the grave. Now, I don't think for a second that David understood exactly about what it is to have a resurrected body or the new heavens and the new earth or a resurrection in Christ. Now, I think by faith, as he wrote this song, he is trusting that whatever lies beyond his death one day, that since he trusts his God in all things, it will be a good thing for him. David, the original author of this song, sings a song of confidence that his life on this earth will be one that is under God's protection and, and whatever comes after his life will be a good existence with God. But it turns out there's more going on than even King David knew. Uh, as you'll find many times in the Psalms, there are some things that the author, in this case David, meant about himself and his present circumstances. And yet there's a second author, the Holy Spirit, that has pointing forward those same words to something far greater in the coming of Jesus Christ. The, the words of this part of Psalm 16 are quoted in Acts chapter 2 by the Apostle Peter 
as he's preaching on the day of Pentecost to the gathered crowds. This is right after the Holy Spirit had uh, uh, come to the, the apostles and granted them the power to preach Christ. And as they're in the process of turning the world upside down by preaching forgiveness in Christ, they quote from Psalm 16. I'm going to read a section from this. I'm going to read it quickly since it's long, but just listen for these words and see how the apostle Peter applies them. Acts 2, 25 to 32. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up that we all are witnesses. Apostle Peter connects the dots for us. That even in this song of confidence on the lips of King David, it was pointing forward to David's greater son to come, the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ. These verses become the proof through the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus is God's Messiah, the king over God's people. That as great as King David was, one day his earthly course would be run. He would die and be buried in a tomb, and he would stay in that tomb for hundreds of years. But his descendant, Jesus Christ, he would die and stay in the tomb only three days. He, even though he would be turned over to the depths of death, he would find the paths of life to walk back up from the valley of death into the land of the living. He would be exalted, raised up by God to be at the right hand of the Father to the place of full joy and pleasures forevermore. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's song. He is the embodiment of the security our souls need because he is the refuge we need to run to on the day of trouble. And his resurrection proves that. In his conquering of death and forgiveness of sins, he guarantees all of us that we will join him on the path of life. And that we too will have forever joy at his right hand. Now if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just acknowledge that this might have been a very difficult year for you. I know so many in our community have been enduring great hardship. Maybe you've been afraid and anxious. Maybe you've even lost someone close to you. One of the things that God might be doing in your life is showing you that there's no such thing as true security in this world, aside from the security you can find in Jesus Christ. Whether it's a pandemic or the end of a long and well-lived life in your old age, one day or another, you will leave this world 
your life will end. And the Bible tells us it's, it's appointed for all of us to live once and then face the judgment. The true storm that you need to find refuge from is the, the storm of the punishment your sins deserve, the, the wrath of God. And the Bible tells us there's only one way to escape that punishment, and that is in the safe place that is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that gave his life as a substitute for sinners like you and me. He did that so he could absorb the winds of the wrath of God so that if you trust him, if you take refuge in him, that your soul would be safe and secure on the day of judgment. That means, friend, what you need more than anything, more than a vaccine or a safe community or a long life on this earth, what you need more than anything is to find salvation in Jesus Christ. You can do that by trusting him, by renouncing all others and realizing that he and he alone is your master and he and he alone can save your soul. If you don't know how to do that and you have a Christian friend, just ask them. They would love to tell you how they have found Jesus to be their safe place and how you can do it also. Now, for all of us that are Christians this morning, remember that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the salvation that he has brought us, the forgiveness of our sins, it guarantees you that he is the safe place for your soul. No matter what trial or difficulty, no matter how hard the days may be or how long or short your life may prove to be, if you learn to run to him as your refuge, you'll never be disappointed. You will always find rest for your soul, satisfaction, peace, comfort, and counsel. You will find Jesus to be your safe place. He's already proved himself to you. So would you trust him even this week? The Phillips family, on that day where they ran into their safe room, they were saved from the winds of the tornado that came and took their house. But they realized that what happened to save their lives in their refuge was a picture of the refuge for their souls that they had received in Jesus Christ. See, those twisters came on Easter Sunday, and they were in the middle of live streaming an Easter service at home. Sound familiar? And when they ran into that safe room, they were conscious of the fact that they were under the protection of God. Mr. Phillips said this. He said, that safe room and the good Lord above saved us. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. Reflecting back on it later, he, he looked at that safe room standing amongst the rubble, he said, seems familiar. He said, the more I look at what is left of our house, it makes me think of the tomb Jesus was in. We were in there, but Jesus protected us. Brothers and sisters, you have a safe place for your soul. You have somewhere you can run to to find refuge. Would you trust him? Would you know that your heart is secure now and it will be forever? Let's pray.